HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Many people in our food community have been seriously impacted by Superstorm Sandy, and our hearts go out to them. At HRN, we've been covering these stories since the storm hit. To learn more, visit our website at www.heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today's program is devoted to disaster relief and how we can do it better. My guest in studio today is Christy Robb. She is the Director of Food Services for the excellent St. John's Bread and Life, an emergency food provider in Brooklyn. She has a long history in case management and social services, and prior to that, she was a punk rocker. Welcome, Christy. Hi. I hear my phone. Oh, I didn't turn my phone off. Either. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we got to do that. So, um, <laughs> anyway, never mind. So, Christy, talk to us about your day-to-day job, because St. John's Bread and Life provides something like twenty-three or 2,500 meals per day to your community in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Yeah, we do a soup kitchen, a mobile soup kitchen, and a food pantry. We've got two meals a day that go out. So, yeah, it's about 2,500 meals a day that we're normally doing Monday through Friday. It's not a huge space either, by the way. I worked in it last week with you, and um, it's not like you have, uh, you know, 18 burners, a giant flat top. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of limited in its resources, and even the counter space is not enormous. You do have a lot of sinks, which is good, and the dishwashing <laughs> station. Somebody wanted a lot of sinks in there. Yeah. I know. That, that struck me as interesting, too. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was like, uh, yeah, you, and you have, you know, you have a big soup kettle. You have, like, one of those uh, brazier things, but... Um, yeah, and some convection ovens. It's, right. It's pretty modest considering your output. Yeah. Um, and you have the so- mobile soup kitchens. So what happens when you do that? When you supply those? They go out with usually about three hundred meals mm-hmm. in the morning and the afternoon to about five or six different sites around the city. So they go to Queens. They go out to Coney Island on a normal basis. They're in East New York and Williamsburg, and they 
provide meals out there for usually a couple hours in the morning, a couple hours in the afternoon. Uh-huh. And it's the same meal that we're serving at our back at well, St. John's. So we yeah. cook it out of that same kitchen. Right, exactly. Yeah, it would have to be at tw- that kind of volume. I mean, just to digress for a second. I mean, I was like, when I came into work with you last week, and I, I'm, I'm like, I'm coming from my catering background where we're talking like three, four, <laughs> 500 people. And it's like, I just had no, you know, my persnickety way of cooking just doesn't work for that volume level. But some of so it, it does. And that's what I'm trying to figure out, too, because I come more from that size although way back I've done a lot bigger but yeah it was all homemade at that point I mean there wasn't even the processed food available right but yeah it's a little bit tricky but some of it does translate it's just a, you got to figure it out which is what I'm in the process of doing which is what you were helping me do <laughs> how can we do really good cooking in that yeah type of volume and in that volume yeah and and also dealing with just the um the sheer volume of vegetables i mean you get a lot of donations from the food bank and from other places in fact i was you know having done some culinary demonstrations there i've been absolutely stunned by the quality of produce that comes in from your green market um suppliers <clears throat> which you know obviously has is goes away in the winter but still and uh and just you know making sure that the stuff doesn't go bad and that it you know you get to use it all up before it's it's past its prime and so on that's got to be a big challenge yeah it is yeah absolutely <laughs> i'm getting better and better at it but yeah <laughs> so now in the in the wake of hurricane sandy and i i'm sorry i'm not going to call it superstorm sandy i know that's the cool thing to do and i guess it was uh, in my reading today i i discovered that it is it is absolutely the first and only time we've ever had a storm of this magnitude, a thousand miles in um, diameter, and that was the confluence of a regular hurricane, which is a summer storm, meeting a winter storm. That has never happened before in the history of weather predictions or weather, you know, charting. So, um, you know, it's clearly a response to the change in climate. Now, when you, you know, when your staff and you and and Tony Butler and and the other guys who work there were confronted with the storm relief. What were the decisions you had to make, and how how is how is coping with you know that extra volume of meals? I mean, how do you manage well, that? Well, you know, it kind of rolls out. Um, sorry for the bad pun. Uh, rolls out in a you know every day, right? So they were we were open the first two days of the the day the storm hit, and the next day people came in for an abbreviated period and put out breakfast and lunch, which amazing. is sort of amazing. I did not get there because I live in the West Village, so I was really not. I was scared to come on Monday of the first day, and then I didn't make it there on Tuesday. But then we were open the rest of the week, and each day we just kind of did something more, and we kind of figured out something more we should do. Mm-hmm. So we went out to our regular site in Coney on Thursday, which is the day we go out there, and then we just went there Friday as well. And then by Monday, we were like, we've got to basically put a huge amount of our effort towards disaster relief. And so... You know, and Tony and I kind of came together in the morning at eight o'clock on Monday morning and said, we got to do this. And then the next thing we know, Robin Hood called and they're, they want us to, to try to do it and they're helping us do it. And then it just went from there. And then right. every day we ended up going out. So we went out to the Rockways a few days. We went out to Coney every, every day last week and we just, you know, started doing it and we just kind of, you know, doing it by the seat of our pants and, and do it, right. roping in as many people as we could. Most of our staff stayed extra. Yeah. We were working fi- you know, 12, 15-hour days. We were in there all last weekend, both Saturday and Sunday, because we had to be. I mean, that's just the only way to get it done. Sure. So you know, that's, that's what we did, and we just kept trying to put out as much stuff as we could. The city of New York, through a program actually at HRA called EFAP, ended up delivering to us 18 pallets of food, called us right away, said, what do you need? We said, we need pantry food because we heard that people actually out in the, 
areas that were the most affected needed pantry food. I mean, not complicated pantry food, not rice and pasta, but things like tuna fish and peanut butter and stuff that they could just use easily bread. So with the food, with the hot meals, because we always brought out a hot meal because we knew that that was really crucial, especially last week when it was so cold. Yeah. And... We just kept making soups. But then you were you know? also bringing out <laughs> bags of groceries. Bags of groceries. Things that people could like sustain themselves with during yeah, you know, the times when you're not there. Shelf-stable milk and juice and, yeah. and just stuff that we knew would be useful. Because we're dealing with people that are in those circumstances actually all the time. So yes. that part of it was sort of not as hard for us because we're doing it already. And it was just sort of extrapolating it out to a bigger situation and people that would not normally necessarily be our clients right fascinating i mean absolutely incredible so um let's move on to um you and i had such an interesting conversation yesterday and today prior to the show it's like hard to know even where to start um too bad that wasn't taped yeah (laughs) just us talking while we're having some bloody marys i know we're so cool um but how does like how do you feel like the disaster relief has actually worked in the moment because i mean a lot of the things that we talked about some things have been planned for like there was obviously a plan for con ed there was a plan for the subway system i mean it took a lot of hard work obviously but that stuff has been working although con ed mm. but i loved andrew cuomo saying do it right and do it now or lose your contract i thought that was really kick-ass and, of and, him and probably yeah i really appreciate that too and probably the workers i mean you, you know it's always hard to separate the workers from the management i mean i feel like the workers have been out there and yeah. they, they they obviously were out there because they got a lot of stuff up and running right away it was freezing cold it was horrible yeah conditions that some of them might have been affected too we don't even know um, you know, so that's hard for me to work out because uh, I, I want to feel like they've actually busted their asses too to get the city back up and running, and they must have. I mean, those are individual human beings. Sure. At the end of the day, who had to do that work? Well, it was and every as we know, building. Some of them were kicked out for the marathoners at one point <laughs> yeah. of their hotel rooms near the disaster site so they could work. But yeah, well, that's another story. We didn't even get into that. I know, right? Um, but. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, I think the city has gotten much better at pre-disaster planning so they know when to shut down the subways they know when to tell people to evacuate schools will be closed evacuate your homes this is real even if it's not we have to plan for it to be real and and they would have taken tons of shit if they hadn't done that so i mean they have to do that um we're allowed to curse on here right because it's it's internet yeah i mean i i don't encourage it but go right ahead i I mean i do it it's okay it's okay um so, but I think clearly there's a lot of post-disaster that, okay, once it hits as big as we thought, are we really prepared? And obviously there's a lot of problems that we weren't thinking about or we, you know, weren't, weren't in place, like fuel. You know? Well, fuel was one. Uh, just the, the sheer magnitude of the power outage. Yeah. I, I, don't, think, I don't think anybody had anticipated um, that. I don't think they anticipated that uh, basements and building infrastructure would be as damaged as they have been. I mean, I was reading a lot about the Knickerbocker Village on the Lower East Side, which is home to a lot of elderly people and has been a real thorn in the side of the Manhattan you know, piece of the puzzle, um, just because like out in the Rockaways, like in Coney Island, um, there are these pockets of sort of housing development, low income or middle income housing, where, uh, you know, the residents can literally cannot get in and out of the building or up and down the stairs because they're too old and it's too dark. Yeah. And what has that meant? And to and to realize that the infrastructure of those buildings is very old, um, that even if they can dry it out, it's not necessarily going to be so easy to fix it. And that's been a lot of the stuff that has slowed down relief and aid to those buildings. Um, I see a lot of complaints in the media, or not a lot, but some, 
about FEMA and Red Cross. Can you talk a little bit about how, um, you know, what their piece of it is and how they operate and why it's not more obvious that they're around and doing their thing? Yeah, I think that's an interesting one. And my take on it, and this is without knowing 100%, but I do have somebody that I've talked to that, that does volunteer with them and has given me some insight into it. And I think part of it is that they're a really big machine and yeah. they can respond to a tsunami in Indonesia, right, at some point. And clearly community groups are not capable of that because they have this huge network, but it takes a lot of time for them to get that network in place. And I think that's the same problem that FEMA has. Mm -hmm. They're also a big machine, and while they can be very efficient once they get in place, they, they takes them a lot of time, and there's a lot of holes in the meantime, and community groups end up filling that in. And so I think, and then, and then even when they get in place, it's limited. They, they can't necessarily get to every single place. And so that's good or bad. I'm not really weighing in on an opinion because I think it's a complicated issue. Yeah. And, and clearly it God, could be I really better. hate the black and white. It's like, yeah, I think it's not that simple. It's really um, not. You know, how does a society respond to stuff like this? I, you know, and then there's of course all the other problems where people, purposely don't respond in the right way or have judgments or racism is at play like in Katrina. Or, mm -hmm. So that's another level of it. But I think just from the baseline, it's not that simple an issue and it's, it's quite complex. And I think we need to spend a lot more time in between these things, really working on them and really putting a lot of heads on them and a lot of different people need to be at the table, not just the people in government, not just the people that have the the power or the resources, literal power, um, but all the all the different players that are part of it, which is pretty much everybody down to the dogs and cats. Yeah. Well, so been, we're all part of it. It's um, been really interesting how well community groups have responded and how involved community groups have been in um, in addressing some of these holes, as you describe. I mean, uh, yesterday when I was doing some research for the program, I watched a sort of home video uh, of a woman out in, uh, I think it was Brighton Beach or Coney Island. And she, you know, speaking of one of these big housing developments uh, for middle income, you know, or fixed income residents, and a lot of elderly people. And again, a situation where they can't get in and out and food and resources, water is not coming to them. And it's because the Red Cross is not aware, because the National Guard is not aware, because FEMA is not aware of the existence of the building or what the resident population is. And that's where that community piece really comes in, I think, because yeah. um, one of the things you and I were talking about, we're going to take a break in just a second, but but just the idea of um, mapping out communities on a certain level so that those areas are pinpointed. like, And it has to be updated because things change yeah. so much, especially right now in New York City. This is not necessarily true of every city, although it probably is now. But they're just changing dramatically, right? Buildings are getting ripped down left, right, and center. New big fancy office towers and buildings are being put there. So even just knowing what's current, you know, there's probably buildings that are on the roster that don't exist anymore and buildings that do or not. So I'm sure that's going on because it's just so much stuff. So well, I think we should just make a list, Christy, and we'll yeah. just submit it to the mayor's and the government yeah. governor's office. <laughs> a good old laundry list works really well. Yeah, it really does. Um, Joe, we should take a quick commercial drop here, and we'll be right back with Christy Robb, the Director of Food Services for St. John's Bread and Life in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. Thanks so much.
White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Leaving by Dead Stars on heritageradionetwork.org. We're back. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking about disaster relief today with Christy Robb, the Director of Food Services for St. John's Bread and Life, a food provider, a food pantry, a mobile soup kitchen for um, the communities in Bed-Stuy, but also in other communities like Coney Island and, and elsewhere around New York City. Um, Christy, thanks again for joining me today. So we um, there is just so much to cover here. So in the future, we were talking earlier before the show, like some of the unexpected problems problems that came up, for instance, the gas availability, the fact that the refineries in Elizabeth were shut down from the flooding and that it's been very hard to get gas into the city, uh, transportation for volunteers to disaster sites. Why should people be, you know, using their own gas? I mean, why isn't the city giving city buses to, you know, rotate people in and out of uh, the Coney Island area or over to Staten Island, whatever? Clean water. Who thought of that? There should be water trucks available, mobilized right away. Um, the street lights, the fact that those Klieg lights didn't go up. I mean, we could go on and on. Why don't you talk yeah. a little bit about what are some of the things that you thought, um, you know, certainly from your history, because we can work in that Great Peace March thing here now. <laughs> <laughs> and all the other mobile stuff I've done yeah, over the yeah, years. Yeah, you've yeah. done a lot of that. So let's talk a little bit about how the city could be better prepared. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I mentioned too how I saw the Freedom Tower lit up on... I think it was probably Wednesday or Thursday. So my neighborhood was still completely pitch black and yeah. evacuated or, or decimate, you know, deserted. And I'm hearing about all the people out in all the, the areas that were the most affected as well, having no light, any any light. And I'm seeing this gigantic building with, you know, probably, I don't know how many Klieg lights they had in that building. I'd love to know. That'd be a great sort of fact. Uh, ridiculous. Why That building didn't need to be lit up. And those lights could have been in other places and they could have that stuff on the ready. Uh, we talked about with the great with the uh, peace walk how we had you know a big water truck it was just yeah. on a little on a little trailer a big a big like the cement you know the round well, in cement Mexico, things with water on it in Mexico those are constantly running back and forth on the coast because they have so little fresh water there I mean how hard would that be to get you know have a hundred of those sitting someplace in a warehouse ready to go if yeah. we have neighborhoods with no clean water I mean right so I think this stuff we could really figure out it's not that big a deal but we just got to do it before we're actually in the crisis because once we're in it then we're just in it and the the train is rolling and we can't really stop it yeah and so you know even like us doing all the food that we did last week the extra food because we were doing probably about five to five hundred to a thousand extra meals a day with the same staff that we always work with but now we this week we have a much better idea of how to do it and how many people we need and and we're going to have two shifts and you know, we're going to do some, we had time to catch our breath and make some plans. So now is the time to figure out next time. And you already hit on it. I mean, it's lights, water, 
sanitation, sanitation. You know, I had also on that on that walk, we had a trailer with eight porta potties on it. Yeah. I mean, how many porta potties live in America? I mean, how, how hard live would it in be? New York. I mean, right. we how bring hard them out would for it all be? the festivals? Yeah, they're out for all kinds of stuff. They're out for construction sites. I mean, how yeah. hard would it be to make sure that those get into areas that don't have flushing water? I mean, yeah, I don't think this is rocket science. It's just a matter of really identifying it, planning it, and then then deciding who's going to put it in place. Uh, for us right away. Well, I think that's the challenge because, um, and that's uh, that's sort of where that whole community group piece of it comes in. I mean, I suppose, you know, the Red Cross obviously has a lot of those supplies, but as you pointed out in the earlier segment, it takes a while for them to get mobilized and to understand exactly where those resources need to be directed. And FEMA, even though it's, um, and I've done quite a bit of reading about this, FEMA is largely directed by the states. It's a federal emergency management agency but they the state is telling fema where to go right so it's not like it's you know some big government thing that just kind of decides what it's going to do and when it feels like doing it so but but without that community piece without the piece of like uh occupy uh sandy oh my god they did amazing amazing. yeah in terms of centralizing information in terms of getting people to know where to go what to bring to what to donate, because we were talking about how that's a huge issue. People just donating everything and anything without there really being a focus. And that site has really tried to explain to people, this is what is needed. Yeah. And new stuff. It's got to be new batteries. You can't be taking batteries out of your flashlight and donating. It doesn't help people. Right. So it's all that kind of stuff being centralized and really people understanding what it is that's needed. And where, and where they can bring it. send it or yeah. where they can bring it. I mean, one of the smartest things I saw earlier in the week right after the storm was um, one of my Facebook friends, Judith Newman, who's a, you know, a writer for the New York Times and many magazines. And she said, here's a great idea, you know, go to Amazon, order stuff. I ordered blankets, but I could have ordered baby supplies or batteries and flashlights, you know, whatever it is, go to Amazon, order it and send it. And she published the name of the city councilman for the Rockaways. And his place, his office or his house or whatever it was, became the depot for these deliveries. Right. And then right. he can organize his people to get it out to this, you know, to the community at large. And I thought that was a really smart way to do it. And that's something Beautiful. that... It's so easy. Anybody can do it. Because people yeah. have been calling me and saying, I feel guilty. I can't get there. I can't do this like right and i'm like just go online you'll find out what you can do without leaving your chair and mm-hmm. you won't feel guilty mm-hmm. and i don't think anybody should feel guilty i mean i think it's a situation where some of us are in place and able to do stuff directly and some of us are doing other things and i was talking to uh steve who owns gourmet guild in williamsburg and we we're talking about how some people just need to keep the real world going the regular world going people want to come back right. to something so that's important too <laughs> you know it's not that's like, right and that everybody's affected just because it's happening, it's out there. Everybody has an impact on everybody, and you do what you can do. I mean, but I think we, yeah, we need to tighten up who is able to do the bigger stuff, the direct service piece, yes, and create those depots in every neighborhood. So every neighborhood has a St. John's, for instance, that's willing right. to receive. And we are, by the way, because we're taking stuff out with the food. So we're taking out hot meals, pantry. And now yesterday, Ralph Lauren gave us probably 200 brand new comforters that will go out with us. Right. So, you know, we, and we have our own limit, but we can do a lot of that. So yes, we know that you have the infrastructure. Yeah. And we have the staff and we have the connection to volunteers and we have funders who have been helping us. The city of New York gave us probably 40 pallets of food because they know we're sending out pantry. Right. So rather than them trying to figure it all out themselves, they're coming to some of their partner organizations that they already fund 
And once they identify that we're doing what we say we're doing, then, you know, the food is rolling in for us to give out. Right, to process and and move. Yeah, Yeah, which is incredible, and it's all really good stuff that people need. So So one of the things that the city could do, um, or any city could do, not just uh, New York, but any city, is to know who these groups are and how to connect them to each other so that they can not duplicate their own services um, and maybe trade volunteers or trade neighborhoods or what, however that works. Um, and then also the idea of like almost creating a baby registry and like even hooking right. up almost a QVC kind <laughs> right. of thing. We were talking about that. Right. Uh, that would be perfect. Yeah. Like for like TV. flashlights or those, yeah. those lamps that you, you know, stick up on your, the wall of your closet and all the cool string. camping gear that we could have, yeah. which is what people really need right now. It's really right. just all that good camping gear. Yeah. And you could know we need 10,000 blankets and we could see it going down as people bought them. Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And then we move on to batteries or lights or, or you can choose. Or a or, camping stove. Or, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's whatever so many ways we could actually do it that and, would be successful. And that would be addressing some of those very basic needs like blankets, like lights, um, I don't know, even like five-gallon jugs for water. You know, like that was something I didn't have last year in Irene when I didn't have power for eight days. And we were, and, you know, we ran through the bathtubs and the sinks pretty fast. And, um, you know, and we had, I had no big, jugs for water I ended up yeah. and it t- and my hardware stores because you know the transportation distribution that kind of stuff and that's another whole piece of the puzzle yeah but they weren't getting into stores so you know people bought like there was an immediate run on generators there was an immediate run on five gallon jugs for fuel or for water it took me four days to get one yeah so we were talking about that sort of yes, a rationing system that rationing has to go in place and, yeah. sort of a certain amount of days before a disaster because it becomes crazy in that way but here's a nod to small buildings in New York, which used to be the whole city. Is you know I had water in the West Village because I live on the third floor of an old tenement building. Right. So I had water and flushing toilets the whole disaster. Now that could have gotten contaminated, so that would have been a different story. But you could still you, flush your toilet, yes, though, which really so, becomes a very, very yes, important piece of your quality of life. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's sort of huge, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's something to remember if you live in a small building, you don't have to be as worried. Although you should put some water away just because of contamination. So I did, but I didn't need to be. It, it ended up being more possible for me to stay right. home. But then, yeah, where do we get that clean water? And you know, yeah, you're drinking water, and yeah, yeah. There's all these it's, pieces, and now is a time like we were talking about earlier to really start planning it. Yeah, for the city, for the state, and for the federal government. And for individual government. people. Yeah, you know, and for too. people I themselves. was sort of a wreck in terms of planning. Well, like, after personally. September 11th, remember, we were all encouraged to have a quote-unquote disaster kit, like know where all your important papers are uh, in case you need to evacuate the city, or at the very least have, you know, several gallons of clean water. Like my sister-in-law... On, actually on Y2K, literally, she thought there would be no more water. Oh, right. So she she hoarded cash and water. <laughs> she literally had every closet in her apartment filled with gallon jugs of water. I mean, it was demented. And after September 11th, my ex-husband did much of the same thing. He also had peanuts, peanut butter, you know, like all those foods that don't require cooking, that are high energy, high nutrition. Um, and that's something else that people should think about. And I mean, honestly, there were a lot of people who I think think we're caught short there's some with the hoarding mentality that you know raided all of the stock the supplies in fairway and nothing <laughs> right. happened right. um and then there's others who did nothing and really found themselves 
having a tough time afterwards. Right. Because it did take a while for trucks to get back into the city. Absolutely. And I still, I mean, still somebody told me um, that was out with our truck yesterday in Rockaways that every store is still shut down. There's not one store open Because there. there's no power. Yeah. And they ha- and, and there's just so much damage. And so, yeah. you know, while stores are open in the West Village, for instance, or in parts of the Lower East Side that were shut down for a few days or even, even for four or five days, they're now open, but those other areas are not. So stuff isn't getting out there except for that's right. disaster relief. That's right. So that, I mean, that's something to, and I hope in the future, I, I tried to get the American Trucking Association to come on oh, yeah, this week because I wanted to talk about, like, you know, when the roads are not passable, as they were not for, you know, certainly in some of those areas, you couldn't even get through because of the power lines and the trees down and the, you know, damage to the roadbeds. Um, and that was true certainly last summer as well, like upstate yeah. in when after Irene and like entire, you know, large sections of road in Vermont and New York washed away. Yeah. And there was no way for trucks, which is our primary method of distribution in this country, to get product to the people who needed it or to take product away. So, um, you know, there's just like so many ways in which these events um, are going to keep happening. The 50 year flood last year was not 50 years. It was, you know, it was like one in five and this storm and last storm and, you know, it's all going to intensify. And plus there's always the threat of a terrorist event um, where you really just can't do anything except hope that you, have your right. uh, whatever that drug was we were supposed to take to avoid uh, dirty bombs. What was that? Oh, I have I a whole. I've got a bottle of that stuff. Some you do. I do. Good yeah. to know. <laughs> That's right. Stick with me, baby. That's right. I'm filing away a lot of stuff like the peanuts that your ex-husband has. Yeah. <laughs> I may need those. <laughs> yeah, really. Anyway, unfortunately, Christy, we have to wrap this up, but I really think it would be an interesting thing to have a little series on this, on like just kind of preparedness and what it takes Definitely. and so forth. And um, and thank you so much for all the good work that you are doing, that St. John's Bread and Life is doing, all of their donors. And, yeah, um, all the people that have given us stuff to uh, come you know, out with. It's, and, it's, and all the staff there has been amazing. The staff and, is amazing. Those people are so great. I really, really enjoyed yeah. my work there with them. And, um, and you'll be back hopefully i'll be back to teach you know <laughs> cutting up turkeys that's right we have thanksgiving coming i mean it's just like we're rolling yeah. with the regular yeah. stuff too which right. is sort of fascinating it's a little a little crazy but <laughs> yeah. you know you seem to have your head on your shoulders and i, I really applaud you for that so thanks thank to you. my sponsor white oak pastures thank you to my engineer joe galaraga i'll be back next week i'm going to be talking about garbage recycling next week and composting um i can't Unfortunately, I forgot to write down the name of the company. I can't remember who it is. But uh, it should be a really interesting little piece of of sort of the whole issue around urban agriculture and and trying to make, you know, the city more self-sustainable. And this is just part of it. You know, you don't like to think about garbage and where it goes and, you know, it like gets taken away in a truck, thank God, and we don't have to deal with it. But actually, you know, there are ways, one, you know, good ways and bad ways of dealing with it. And that's what we'll be talking about. So um, thanks again for tuning in today. My guest again has been Christy Robb, the Director of Food Services for St. John's Bread and Life. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'll see you next week. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Bye-bye. Someone else state of Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>